We're very blessed to have Father Whitestone here with us, who is the pastor of St. Leo's, uh, who has so generously opened the doors to the Institute of Catholic Culture over and over and over again, um, and uh, very pleased to have him here to lead us in prayer, so please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we gather this evening in your presence with a profound spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving. We thank you for the gift of our Catholic faith, the faith which shows us the way to truth, the way to the fullness of life in you. We give you thanks this evening for our families and for our nation. We ask you to bless them, protect them, and cherish them always. Heavenly Father, we now pray to you in the words that our Savior gave to us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is our first in a three-part series on the virtuous life that I hope you will be attending. Uh, of course, next week here, same place, same time, Father Fisher from St. Ambrose will be speaking on the virtue of faith. Um, and our third talk with Father Scalia on the challenge of living the virtuous life today. It's a battle, friends. It's a war. Uh, and the devil does not want us to win. He does not want Jesus Christ to be victorious. And that's why we're having this series during Lent as we struggle through the fast on our journey towards Pascha, towards Easter, towards the resurrection. We have to kind of gird ourselves with the instruments to win the battle. And this is a way to do it. Okay, it's a spiritual battle and we need to know the truth. And so especially that third talk will be giving us kind of the practicals, getting down saying, we know the challenges. How do we deal with these challenges that we're facing today, living the virtuous life? Our speaker tonight is the fourth of six children, born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He graduated from the University of Virginia in 1994. He attended both the North American College in Rome and also the Angelicum. He was ordained a priest in 2005. He has served at both St. Mary's in Alexandria and is now at St. James in Falls Church. Please welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Daniel Hanley. It's great to see you all here this evening, and such a packed crowd. It's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming out on a, on a Saturday night, and I guess the wine helps you come out, too, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Everything in moderation, the virtues, right? Tonight, we're, I'm going to talk about the virtues in the title of the talk we led with, with, uh, with justice, but I want to talk about all the cardinal virtues and then all the virtues that are allied with, underneath of them, and we're going to explain exactly what that means. I want to begin by, by kind of exposing what the virtues are, and then we're going to look at living them. Forming them is a better way to put it. Forming them in our individual lives and how we can do that. Hopefully tonight, you won't just know what the virtues are, but hopefully you'll come away with a resolution. It'd be kind of a bad, bad talk on, on, on the virtues if you walked away just going, thinking about them intellectually and not trying to put them into use. And that's the whole idea. The virtues are supposed to be practical. 
and they're supposed to spring us towards the good. And so that's what we'll be aiming for. I want to begin my talk. Last Two weeks ago, Father Scalia gave a talk, and it's not appended to this series, but maybe many of you were there. It was a talk on the natural law, and he and I had spoken about the natural law. And we have to, in order to understand the virtues, we really have to begin with the natural law as, as kind of one of our first principles. Uh, first of all, that there is a natural law. Natural law is, is knowing what's right and wrong, knowing what makes the human being thrive, and knowing, because we know what makes the human being thrive, knowing what we ought to do, knowing how we ought to live. It's based on a knowledge that we are and we have a telos. It's based on the, the, the simple point, which in this day and age is not such an easy thing to assert, that we actually can know what it means to be human. That doesn't mean we, we, we strip it of its mystery. But, but we do know who we are and what we are. We know our nature. And because we know our nature as creatures, as, as, as physical and spiritual, with the capacity of an intellect and a will to know and to love, because we know those things, we also know our proper end. And we can see how we should behave towards God, towards, towards the world, towards each other, and even towards ourselves, drawing conclusions. But notice, all those conclusions are drawn from knowledge of what we are and who we are, and from that what, from that is, comes an ought. And it's not an illicit jump to move from what something is to an ought, because the is itself, the mode of being, the way the thing is, tells us what, how the thing thrives. And so I take that as a given, and that's our, our launching point. I'm not going to go into it. Maybe in Q&A you can ask more questions about it. But suffice it to say that we know what we are and we know right and wrong. And if this is true, though, uh, we look around, and the natural law itself is not a survey of human behavior. It's, it's, a, it's a look and a survey of human nature, not human behavior. And if we look at human behavior, we can see the natural law often ignored, violated, and not recognized. And, and so what is that about? If there's supposed to be a natural law kind of written on each heart that's supposed to govern the way we're supposed to live, why don't we see it always lived out? Why in our own lives? Don't we always do it? Why in our own lives do we not see it sometimes? And even when we see it and know it, we still violate it. We make rationalizations for ourselves maybe at the time when we violate it, but we still do violate it. Why is that? And of course we know that's because of the original sin and its consequences. And that's where we have to begin kind of our story of understanding the virtues. Original sin, the fall, and the original temptation. And to see what the temptation was. The temptation was not a carnal temptation, it was not a temptation, really even of emotion. It had to be a purely intellectual temptation. That's the one place, the one place that the devil could get a grip upon humanity in its perfect state of justice with God. And notice what the temptation was. It doesn't even seem like a temptation. He says, you will be like God if you do this. Why did I say it doesn't even seem like a temptation? The devil comes to Eve and says, oh, you will be like God. Now, not but 20 verses before, we've already heard, they were made in the image and likeness of God. They already are like God. They were made like God. So what's the temptation here? It's not actually getting the likeness itself, it's the way in which you get the likeness. It's, it's, it, the temptation was to go beyond just receiving, to try to rebel against your own creatureliness, your contingency, your very existence is given to you, the image is given to you, the devil tempts, don't receive the image, go out and take it. You see, that, you see that basic point? That's, that's the temptation. 
The temptation, that's why I say the temptation is of pride. It's to unseat God in, as, in the throne over you, in, over your life. It's to oh, try to overthrow God. Of course, we can't really do that. All we can do is cut ourselves off from him. And that's what happens with the original sin. Man reaches forward and tries to reach outside of their creaturely existence, rebels against their very existence, their very nature. They deny themselves. They deny who they are and what they are and turn towards themselves. And, of course, that's a turn towards nothingness because you turn away from the very source of being. And what happens when, that, when we do that, of course, usually good things don't really happen when you turn away from the very source of your existence. Like, a, like a, an appliance that has the plug pulled. It's not going to function very well. And that's what happens with us. With the fall, the original harmony of man falls apart. And we, the, classically, we describe the original harmony that man had with nature, with God, and with himself. Uh, we describe those as being held under grace. But then there's another, there's another gift that we saw coming from God, directly in us, sustained by God in us. And we use the word preternatural gifts to describe that. And basically, when we talk about the preternatural gifts, the first thing we, that we see is that it was an exemption for humanity from biological deterioration. You know, in, in probably in the war, world before the fall, leaves still fell to the ground and, and deteriorated, and, and we still had biological functions. However, through the preternatural gifts, God sustained the human body uh, so that it, did, it wasn't subject to decay. Okay, that's part of it. We're not going to concentrate on that part. The other part was this, of the preternatural gifts. The other part was God directly orders the individual's faculties. There's an ordering of the faculties. Not, not, we, we, we're, give, we're given this uh, <clears throat> sanctifying grace, which is the elevation of the human being and the vocation to deep union with God and eventually to heaven. Adam and Eve had that. But they also had these preternatural gifts that interiorly ordered them so that the reason ruled over and was able to present to the will the good properly, and the will was able to spring towards the good, and all the other lower appetites and emotions were all in order, so that you reacted as you should react to everything that's presented to you. You didn't eat that fifth or sixth cookie, because you knew exactly how many cookies you needed and should eat. You enjoyed them the way you're supposed to enjoy them. Um, if you were supposed to be sad at something, which who knows, if they probably didn't have anything at that point to be sad about, they would have been sad in the ordered way. If they're supposed to be angry when the snake gets in to the garden, they would have been angry as they should have been angry. All the emotions were in order and in a proper way. With the fall, those preternatural gifts, as I said, the, the, the connection with God is cut. And so the, 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 the interior ordering of the person is confused so that emotions themselves can be inordinate, inordinate in reaction. Think about when you get mad when someone... When someone uses the ketchup up and puts it back into the refrigerator and then you go to use it. Why doesn't someone throw this out? You know? And we get really mad. More ma madder than we should get mad. We think about little things like that, how we get riled up. That's, that's the disordering of the emotions. And that's what takes place. And this disordering of the emotions, the disordering of the appetites, we desire things at the wrong time and in the wrong place and in the wrong way. Uh, we, we, we lose sight and can't see things very well as far as what is my proper end, what should I really do right now, we become confused. We call it the darkening of the intellect and the confusion of the emotions. And overall, we call it concupiscence. You've probably heard the term concupiscence before. They call them the foams of sin. 
the, the kindling of sin. It's not sin itself, but it's the disorder that, that leads us towards sin. And that's what we have within us. It's, it's a fissure within our nature, let's call it. It doesn't change who we are and what we are. We remain creatures of God. We remain good. But at the same time, we're wounded now. Wounded by the fall. And so we can see what's good, or at least desire what's good. Sometimes we see it with blurry vision. And we want it, but we don't move to it with the facility that we used to, with the ease that Adam and Eve were able to move to it. But yet we still can move to it. Because within each of us remain the virtues. And that's where the virtues come in. The virtues were planted in us. And we can look at the virtues as a partial solution that God preordained to live within us. Because as we lose the, the preternatural gifts, God's direct hand sustaining the, and ordering our interior life, uh, the virtues themselves have to step up. Now the virtues are powers. They're natural powers within us, within our created nature. And they don't completely reverse the, the, reverse the bad things of the fall, but they are able to stave off the chaos, so to speak. It, it, things won't disintegrate totally. They won't redeem us or save us, and they certainly won't relieve us from death. But, uh, but, we see, but each one of them gives us the capacity to, to move towards our proper end to do good still. Maybe not good that tends towards heaven, but at least good that can lead to a certain kind of human good and a human order and a civil society. As we see in the era before Christ, we see the use of virtues by individuals producing things, forming societies that though couldn't get to heaven, that though couldn't reach beyond the earth, could produce good things here and now, though they couldn't tend towards eternity. And what we'll see is that part of God's providence was to take these virtues up into his redemptive action. So that as he redeems the person, these virtues become part of his plan in each of our lives to redeem us through the cross. And I say through the cross because it means it's going to cost us to exercise these virtues. But he will allow us to exercise these virtues and to recover, again, through the cross, our original state in Christ with grace. The virtues themselves, we say, are powers inhering in the person. Habits to move the person to act according to right reason, proper reason, proper understanding, seeing things clearly and moving and pointing toward the proper end, which we could just call the good, the human good. Each In each area of our life, moving us towards what's truly good. They're part of our nature, and they sit within every person's faculties and appetites. So they're, they're in all of the different aspects of who we are and what we are. And they govern those aspects uh, to move them, guiding them towards, what, what, towards the end that they're supposed to have. Understanding them has at its heart, again, I'll say it, an anthropology of nature that believes in, in, in the natural law that you can discern who man is and understand what is the proper action of man and the proper end of man. The discovery of the virtues was not a Christian thing. The Greeks and the Romans and even some other societies had understanding of virtues. The Romans and the Greeks had a highly sophisticated understanding of the virtues with many exposés written, written by different philosophers probably the most famous is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics as he speaks and writes about virtue. But they're organized classically and understood 
most clearly, I think, in the cardinal virtues. The cardinal virtues are the hinge virtue, virtues, is what, what the ancients used to refer to them as. The hinges that hold the door up and allow a door to swing. They're the things that, that keep the human being moving the way the human being is supposed to move. They're the basic and central virtues. And those are temperance, fortitude, justice, and prudence. And they're intertwined. You can't really function fully without the others. One of these virtues may be conspicuously lead, but without the others, it's not really a virtue. All of them need to hang together. And this is because the human being, the, these virtues are just a part of a whole. We have to remember that. It's a simple point, but it's worth remembering and taking a second look at this just simple point, that, that each part of us is connected to the whole of us. And that one virtue can't be exercised without all the others. Maybe they're kind of hidden a little bit, but they're still there, operative. All the virtues kind of hang together, like, like the hinges on a door. That's why they call them the hinge virtues. They all hang together. All of our faculties are interconnected. We can discern a difference between aspects of us, but they're still aspects. They're still parts of us. So there's no compartmentalization of our life over here. I'll do this, yet I'll exercise. I think I can exercise a virtue over here. The virtues take a whole living, a unity of life. Have you ever heard the term unity of life? Each moment and each time and each thing that we do in our life should be, should be connected to our purpose. as a unity of life that we're supposed to have. Um, the virtues themselves, we say, are traits oriented toward the good of the human. Without a good end, there's something else. For example, prudence becomes cunning with a thief. Prudence is practical reason or as we're going to see, you know, knowing how to do something, knowing how to deal with people, knowing how to get, you, get, get to the end of things. But if you start using that practical reason for a bad end, it becomes something else like cunning, manipulation, and different things like that, which are kind of the resources that prudence would, 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 would use, but since it doesn't have a good end, it's not prudence itself. It's, it has a potential that hasn't been reached. And the, all, the allied virtues are the virtues connected with the different and underneath all the different four cardinal virtues. They're related to the cardinal virtues. Sometimes they're a more precise application of the virtue to, a more, to an area, a smaller area of our person, for example. Sometimes they're a little bit more precise. Uh, for example, you would, you would look at um, chastity under temperance. Uh, that would be more precise. And sometimes they're, they're, they function in the same way. Whereas temperance is a restraint, but functions on kind of our appetites. Uh, you would have meekness would be restraint, but functions on our irascible spirit, our anger. Uh, restraining our anger in different, th different situations. And this is the key. They are realized and grown through exertion. The virtues are all realized and grown by, by use. They sit on us in, poten in potential, and they're actualized when we actually use them. Each area of our life is capable of being governed by reason, by the virtues, harnessed by the virtues. They're actualized in the exercise of them. And they're shaped in their mode by the intentional action. What do I mean by that? Virtues look different in different kinds of people. For example, temperance. The temperance of a Carthusian will look a lot different than the temperance of a, five -star, a chef at a five-star restaurant, won't it? It certainly will. But both of them have to have temperance. The one temperance, of course, is oriented towards, towards a, a strict and strong ascetical life. But 
a five-star chef is called to an ascetical life in his own right. And he has to exercise temperance in tasting the wines and doing the different things he has to do. He does exercise that temperance. The prudence of a politician is, is very different than the prudence of a mother, although we both say that a good mother and a good politician have to be very prudent, wouldn't we? And so, so it's exercise. We, we, these virtues are grown in, in, the, in the way that they're exercised. They'll manifest differently in different people who have different roles in their life so that we say they're shaped by intentional, in their mode by intentional action. Again, the only way to have them is in using them, and so we have to start small and build them, build them up. Sometimes we look at a virtue and we're like, oh, I'll never get there. You know? And I always look, this is not necessarily a story about the virtues, but it's a good example from history. I think about Spain when it was overrun by, by, by Islam, and then it was about three or 400 men up in a mountain valley, way, way up. And they came up to the entrance of the valley, the army of Islam, and they basically demanded their surrender. And they were like, no. And that's it. That's all that's left of Spain, these, these last few guys. And you know, they refused to surrender. And they just scrapped, and they held on to where they were, that little toehold, not even a toehold, like a toenail hole uh, in, in the Iberian Peninsula. And then from there, over, seven, over 700 years, they just kept trying and trying and expanding and expanding and expanding until 1492, when finally Spain was fully conquered. But it's, we've got to have that same spirit, the same scrappy spirit. We've got to start small. We've got to take our stand in the virtues where we can. I, I may have very, very little virtue, but whatever little I have, I'm going to take that ground, and I'm going to hold it, and I'm not going to give it up. And then from there, I'm going to try to expand it, expand it, expand it slowly but surely. Starting small, holding our ground, relentlessly moving forward, inch by inch, if we have to. And since they're all connected, the growth in one virtue is related and can help build another. And so oftentimes, we have, our, we, we have difficulty, for example, with, with one area. Maybe it's an area of chastity. Someone has difficulty with that. And you might say to them, as a priest, you say, well, uh, do you put your clothes away, right, when you, know, when you keep a neat room? And they're like, what does that have to do with it? Well, exercise that act of will in keeping a neat room, and you'll be surprised at how that exercise of your will in that kind of, this was a kind of temperance and fortitude in, in putting things away when you just want to be done with the day, right? You want to just kind of throw things around and just go to bed. There's a, there's a kind of temperance there, tempering yourself, which can translate into tempering yourself in another area of your life. So that when we grow in one virtue, we'll see that it'll tug other virtues along with the others. Again, that's that connection. They may, they may lag a little bit behind sometimes, but they'll always be kind of tugged along and strengthened by other virtues. And in the end, the virtues themselves lead to a more excellent life, a greater realization of who and what we are as human beings, and a true freedom. If they're really about our nature and fulfilling our nature, and they give us the facility to fulfill our nature, it's true freedom. Freedom isn't the absence of restraint, a guy walking down the street, like sticking thumbtacks into his head, we wouldn't say, no one's stopping him. You know, guy drinking battery acid, no one's stopping the guy from doing it. We say he's free. No, we think there's something wrong with him because he's doing something so directly against his nature, isn't he? And so we say, there, he must have some sort of internal strain, internal chain, something's wrong with him. And he's not really free. And so when we do things like sin, we're doing something against our nature. We're not doing something free. We're turning away from existence. In fact, one of the greatest definitions of, of sin, I think, is Jacques Maritain called it self-nihilization, the making of the self into nothing. And if you look at sin, the diabolical 
The word diameter and diabolical are related. To cut in half, to break asunder. You know, when you're breaking yourself asunder, you're not more free. When you're living and, and driving towards what makes you more of yourself, that's when you're free. When you're, when you're striving. And all of us have felt it. Moments of our life when we really felt we had purpose. When we were giving ourselves to something generous. Uh, we, we felt more human. We felt more alive. Because we were exercising our virtues and springing towards our proper end. When we're in prayer and we're keeping our prayer life in order, we feel that way, don't we? Because in the end, that's our highest goal. We say it is right to give him thanks and praise. At Mass, we say that. What we really mean is it fits us. That's our fi- it fits us. We're most human when we're on our knees before the Lord, uh, worshiping him in love and receiving his grace. And so that's real freedom. That, that's, that's, that's what it does for us. Vices work the same way. They build habits within us, but to go in the opposite direction. They are habits that dehumanize and form enslaving chains on us over time. And sometimes they can do it very, very quickly. They're a missing of the virtue. that You can miss on either side of the virtue. So you can have a vice in one direction or another. What do I mean by that? Fortitude. You know, that strength, courage, and perseverance that, that, that we need. You could have fortitude missed in both directions. Of course, there's timidity. Someone who shrinks from a task and doesn't do what he ought to do. But then there's also, there's also foolhardiness, which a person who goes barreling into things, not, not aware of any kind of danger that he should be aware of, not aware of the cost and the consequences, that's foolhardiness. So notice you miss on either side. And that's why sometimes people say virtue is in the mean. But we shouldn't understand when we say virtue is in the mean, that virtue is in the medium, it's in the middle, to understand it as a mix of two things, a kind of yin and a yang, or a principle uh, calling everyone to moderation. Virtues don't necessarily call us to moderation. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they call us to do crazy and radical things. That's what a virtue can do. Because the virtue is in itself, it is its being is not dependent on the errors surrounding virtue. Not at all. The reason I think we say virtue is in the mean is because we often discern it, discern virtues and form them in recognition and rejection of error. Sometimes we identify the virtue by attempting it and missing. Sometimes we identify the virtue in our lack of it and where we fail. And then we identify what we need. And then we start seeing it and start striving towards it. So oftentimes it's kind of the via negativa in understanding uh, the virtues in our life. Now I want to take each virtue at a time. First I want to take is temperance. Temperance resides in the concupiscible passions. I like saying concupiscible passions. It's kind of a... But what that really is, we're talking about physical appetites. The physical appetites. And it moderates urges to allow them to be ruled by reason and oriented towards our proper end. So that would be, it has, it has to do with using right reason and not, it has used, using our right reason to govern what we're supposed to do for food intake, for, for our sexual appetites, and other appetites like that, which might be even appetites for rest, um, in some ways appetites for entertainment, and things like that, as we're going to see when we get into the allied virtues. But notice, it's using right reason to govern, not other emotions. Oftentimes, we, we can suppress some of the concupiscible appetites by other emotions like rage or fear. 
And that's not what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to make them subject to be governed and to govern them, to understand them, to see them, to recognize them, to say, oh, it's saying something to me. Is what it's saying to me valid? Partly valid, partly not. I'm hungry, I better take care of myself, but I better not stop at McDonald's. I'll go home and wait and make a sandwich which is a little more healthy. You know, we can, te- we can tell ourselves, it, it, that's, it, it definitely tells, the, these, these appetites tell us something, but we moderate them. And if we rule over them in a kind of despotic way, if we're not aware of them and governing them by reason, they, they will be overthrown. St. Thomas says this, if you rule over these appetites in a despotic way, you will suffer the fate of all despots and be overthrown by them eventually in some way. And that's, that's a very important thing, because a person, for example, who stays chased by rage is not chased. They're a maniac, you know? And there's a formation that takes place to allow for this habitual movement uh, of these appetites. You know, we start again small, and, then, and it builds up and builds up. There's allied virtues to these, and these allied virtues have to do with restraining uh, different appetites. Of course, there's the ones with food pleasure. We talk about abstinence, which can be manifested by fasting and other things. Then there's sobriety in the way we use alcohol. In the, sexual er- in the se- area of sexual appetites, there's, there's continence, which continence is refraining from the act at the wrong time. You know, it's, it's simply that. It's, it's, it's refraining from the act at the wrong time. Chastity, which is the higher manifestation of, 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 this, of the virtue, is embracing the gift of our sexuality and knowing its higher exercise and holding and protecting it to use for the good. Really embracing and knowing the gift that God gave you, knowing that you hold it, for example, in earthen vessels, that that we're weak vessels holding this amazing gift, the gift to participate in God's life, giving life here on earth, and we hold it and use it the way it should be used. Whether that means you're in married life, single life, or consecrated life, or celibacy with the priesthood. Uh, that, that chastity is called for, and it's a virtue that allows us to see the good and use it in, a, in its proper way, in our proper state in life. The allied virtues with anger are clemency. It means restraining yourself even when someone deserves. You know, when anger is elicited in a proper way, which it can be, uh, we're supposed to be angry. If you're not angry when you see something, we call that it's the opposite vice of insensibility. So there's, there's, there's rage, which is one vice, and wrath and rage on one side, which are vice, and then on the other side, there's insensibility. If you see an old woman getting mugged, and you sit there, and you just watch, and you don't care, and you don't get riled up, there's something wrong with you. you know, there, you're, you're vicious. There's something vicious about the way you are. You should be riled up, and, and, that, and, and that anger should move you to act. Now, clemency is there because though we have things that make us righteously angry, it's a very dangerous thing in fallen nature to have this anger, and especially to feel righteous about that anger. Every like 14-year-old who's seen someone you know, who they wanted to beat up do something wrong and use it as an excuse to thump them knows that. He's not really doing it to right the wrong. He's, he's just giving, 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 um, <clears throat> giving, giving way to his desire to just beat this guy up. And I think it's the same with us. We each have to be aware of that, and that's clemency. Clemency holds our anger back and, and let, makes sure that it's governed by right reason. Meekness is kind of more a general keeping of our anger under control and, and, and reaction. Modesty. Modesty is also under temperance as an allied virtue. 
Modesty, we think about anything requiring moderation. Humility would come under the idea of modesty. Humility is viewing ourselves under right reason, viewing who we are, knowing who we are. First of all, knowing we're not God, and then knowing we're not the center of the universe, and then knowing we're not better than everyone else. Uh, that's where humility comes in. Studiousness. It's interesting. Studiousness under temperance, huh? You wonder, why is it there? Why, who would place it under there? But in the end, to really study means to restrain ourselves from other things, our mind from wandering. Studiousness is restraining, oftentimes, our imagination, our desire for ease. How many times have you been reading something difficult and wanted to go, go to sleep? How many times have you been reading something and wished you were reading something more entertaining, but you know that this is the thing you need to learn? And the, and, and the knowledge you're going to get from this is a lot better than the knowledge you get from anything on TV or anything that was easy. The thing is, because the reason that we need this is because we shrink away from the difficulty of learning hard things, and especially the most important things, which are usually abstract first principles. Those are the things we find most difficult to learn, and we shrink from that. Also, modesty has to do with appearance. Uh, appearance, of course, modesty in, in a way that of, of how we dress, whether we dress dressing so as not to, not, not to, not to <clears throat> make yourself into a sexual object. That's one thing. But modesty also has to do with the kind of house that we keep, the kind of cars that we drive, uh, the kind of figure that we, we, kind of, we, we, we make. Modesty has to do with that. It's kind of tempering, tempering ourselves. Fortitude. Fortitude is the next, is the next cardinal virtue I want to speak of. It's governing the emotions of fear, fear and daring in accordance with right reason, to overcome the fearful or the arduous in order to achieve the good. It's overcoming fear and daring in order to achieve the good. Understanding, so it's, it's, keeping, our, it's keeping us restrained from what rashness of daring and keeping us, keeping us from, from being cowardly too and doing the right thing. In other words, to, to have fortitude means not, doesn't mean to not fear, feel fear. We have fortitude precisely because we have fear, and fear is a rational reaction to being on uh, an amphibious landing craft in World War II as you're rolling into Omaha Beach. That's a natural reaction. You know, fortitude is the thing that helps you get over that natural reaction. The guy who is not afraid at that point, who's not experiencing fear, we say, there's something wrong with that guy. He must be deluding himself. He's lying to himself. And usually later on, if he survives, it'll come out in a bad way. It's the guy who says, I'm afraid, and then does, takes the steps to deal with his fear, who has, who's exercising the virtue of fortitude. Fortitude also has to do with the arduous and, and, and doing something in the long haul. The allied virtues to fortitude, the first that I want to bring up is magnanimity. Great souledness. It's the stretching forth of the mind and the heart to do great things. To be to great souledness is, is, is magnanimity, is, is seeking to do great things, achieve great things. It's interesting. I say, I, li I like to see that, say, this is a great example of seeing how all the, the um, virtues are connected. Because humility is actually connected to magnanimity. Now you say, how, how in the world could humility and magnanimity, humility kind of knowing yourself and, 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 putting your, not, not, and keeping yourself at a certain level and not boosting yourself up, and then magnanimity reaching forth, forth for greatness. 
Well, they're, they're absolutely related, especially in the Christian life, when you have to say, I am not the sum of my own being, humility. I am not the greatest thing on the world, humility, but God is. So I won't settle for anything less than God. I won't settle for anything less than something that's outside myself. So the two of them are connected. Without, without humility, magnanimity can mistake, for example, running your own corporation and building a corporation in your own image as true greatness. But with humility, then we know true greatness is allowing God to form the image of himself within us. You see how the two, the two are, are interrelated. Um, also, there's magnificence. Magnificence sounds great, doesn't it? But what we're really talking about here, magnificence means spending, expending greatly to do great work. That's why it's, 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 to do something great means you've got to spend yourself. For example, Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel ceiling. When he got the idea, he conceives it in his mind, and then he draws up you know, the, the sketch of it, and then he looks and he realizes what he's got to do. He flees. He runs. Because he knows it's going to cost him. He knows this is going to almost kill me. And it does. It almost kills him. To paint the ceiling almost kills him. He goes blind for a while. I mean, it's, it, he really he spends himself. It's one of the greatest pieces of art ever. And he knew, I can do it, but if I do it, it's going to cost me. That's magnificence. He, he, was, he eventually came to the point where he was willing to spend himself to achieve something great. Uh, that's, magnificence would be Columbus sailing west further than anybody else has, willing to spend, spend, spend himself on a great achievement. Patience. Patience is enduring sorrows in order to continue on the right course to a good end. Perseverance is similar to patience, but it's persisting in the face of obstacles and setbacks and delays in the pursuit of the good. It's that continual striving forward, striving forth. The third virtue, justice. Justice is giving each their due. It resides in the reason. It's a habit of thought, a way of looking at things, seeing it, and then acting. It begins with a sense of fairness, fairness and moves moves it to others, a sense of fairness for ourselves. Every little kid knows or thinks he knows what's fair for him. And eventually when he starts identifying with another person, then he says, okay, maybe if it's fair for me, it should be fair for him. And they get some, some rudimentary notions of justice. And that's how it begins. So it's knowing what's, what's due to another person. It becomes a capacity to judge your own behavior and, and make decisions in situations and render what is due. To make decisions and situations and re render what is due regardless of the cost. To do what's right and render what's due to another regardless of the cost. And we can see how without fortitude and temperance, you might not be willing to, to spend that cost. To do what's just. Oftentimes we can see it, but then we can't do it. So you see how all the virtues hang together. It's to render what's due. To see it the habit of mind to see it, and then render it regardless of the cost. But notice also this simple, small word, our own behavior. Oftentimes we think about justice. I'm just, I protested over here, and I told this guy that what he was doing was wrong. No. Justice is a virtue that has to begin within each one of us. There was a, there was a college teacher. He used to teach at a college, and he'd come in and he'd lecture us for one class, and he used to go nuts because... 
uh, he, he, we were kind of like therapy for him, I think, because he was teaching undergrads, and he'd come in and teach a bunch, of, a bunch of seminarians. And he would rage about one particular situation. He said, these kids are running around in the dorms, stealing from each other, doing drugs, you know, fornicating, and all sorts of crazy stuff. And then they go down to South America and build a couple, you know, build some huts or a well, and all of a sudden they say, I'm just. He said, they don't have any interior just. Now, there's nothing, he said, you know, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with doing that kind of service work. And maybe for some of them, it'll be a catalyst to have them live a life with more justice within them. But what he was perceiving was that this is justice. This justice is something outside myself. No, it's something inside us. It's something that we have to build within us. The allied virtues of justice are, are pretty neat. They're, they're, they're really pretty amazing. The first one I will look at is religion. Religion is giving God his due. And again, this, isn't, this is not a Christian virtue. The Romans knew this one. I remember I was reading Livy's War with Hannibal. And as I'm reading Livy's War with Hannibal, he would take like two or three pages, about every 15 to 20. I'd be looking for the battles, you know, and looking for the different things happening. But he'd take about, 15, he'd take about a page and a half every so often and just describe all of the different sacrifices that took place that year in Rome. You know, and how they looked at the entrails and stuff like that. And I'm th sitting there thinking, why in the world is he spending time on this? But it was, it, it, one thing it showed was that these Romans really believed, even though they were on the ropes, they still did all the same things that they were supposed to do. And he was making that point, really, that we gave the gods their due. Throughout a whole war, even though we were expending massive amounts of energy, even though Hannibal was at the gates of our city, we never stopped doing our rituals. We never stopped having our festivals. We never stopped killing the bull on this day and killing the goats on this day and doing exactly what we were supposed to do each day we were supposed to do it. Religion. He was saying we have the virtue of religion as a people. The next virtue is piety. Piety, oftentimes we think about praying in church. We should really remember that piety actually comes from a virtue having to do with familial relationships and primarily to do with children's obligations towards their parents and then all the other obligations that connect a family. Again, giving parents their due. And what, they would say, what we say classically about parents and the virtue of piety is that between parent and child, there can never be a state of equal justice. Because a parent gave a child something he can never repay. So if a child spends his life trying to repay the parent, he'll never, or never, he or she will never be able to repay the parent because, of course, the parent gave life. And so, but piety has to do with, with those virtues in the family, in living up to your obligations and giving your due to your brothers, your sisters, your mother, your father, your aunts and uncles, and the whole family. There are vices to do with piety, as we could see. There's the vice of not living up to it. But then there's the vice of, of an overly dependence on family and maybe giving too much to your family. For example, in the history of the church, we've seen prelates and popes have done that. They've given too much to their nephews and different people like that. We can see that. So there's, there's opposite vices to everything. Patriotism is a virtue. Not to be confused with nationalism. Patriotism is a virtue. It's because it, your, your, your country is kind of like a family. It should be. Patria. Think about the word. Your fatherland, your, your, your homeland. We should love our country. And we have an obligation to care for our country. And we even have an obligation to protect our country. That's part of patriotism. Uh, so in the virtues, you know, pacifism, some people may be called to that, like a Franciscan or something like that, or a priest might be called to not shed blood. Those are individuals called in a specific way not to shed blood, but not overall. You know, an obligation to protect our nation is part of patriotism, an obligation to love our country and not to badmouth our country. For example, when we're overseas 
and we have Americans that don't like, people that don't like America, and then we start agreeing with them and bad-mouthing our country, for example. Another allied virtue is observance, respect for authority, due authority. That's respecting, for example, civil leaders, teachers. Again, it's, it's having proper respect and proper relationship with those who are over us. Bosses. It's a virtue. Knowing how to do it without being a toady. That would be one vice. Right? <laughs> and then on the other side, we have, we have to have the vice of the, of the person who's constantly rebelling. He only tells me what to do. You know? And those are the two vices. Knowing just how to do it. Remaining, maintaining your dignity. Maintaining, maintaining your full humanity. Doing it with right reason. Doing it the way you're supposed to do it. Then there's obedience, which is to law. This is an interesting one. Honor. Honor is acknowledging another person's excellence. When you see someone do something well, you should acknowledge it. You sh you sh when you see, see your neighbor do something well, you should acknowledge it. Maybe you don't have to always say something to him, especially if he's cocky, right? But you acknowledge it, and, and you know you say, wow, that's, that's, that's amazing, rather than put it down. It's, it's recognizing, giving the other person their due. That's good. What they did was good. They, they did an amazing thing. I mean, watching the Olympics is kind of like that, isn't it? We're, watch, we're watching excellence so often up there. Gratitude. That's a pretty obvious allied virtue. Gratitude. When someone's helped you, when someone's pulled you out, when someone's done something kind for you, to be able to be grateful to them, to say thank you. Truthfulness, owing someone the truth. This is probably one of the ones I find most interesting that St. Thomas puts in uh, for the virtues. Friendliness, allied to, to justice. Behaving agreeably. It's kind of interesting. Behaving agreeably, it's what people deserve. Giving them what's their due is, is being friendly to people. Acknowledging, it's a fellow, this is a fellow human being. They deserve, they deserve me to be agreeable to them. It's acknowledging and greeting people. It's having manners, taking interests in other people's lives, listening to them, restraining ourselves from contradicting people unless we have to. It's a, a friendliness, making yourself agreeable. It's part of giving another person their due, making, their, make, making sure you don't become part of a miserable life for someone, become, become, part, become a source of misery for someone. Final one I want to hit is, and there are more, but I want to hit liberality. Liberality is using well material resources, spending what we ought to spend on the things and situations we, where we should spend them. And so it's the person getting hot dogs on Christmas would be by, who doesn't who can get better than hot dogs, you know. But just one on Christmas, uh, that would be a violation of liberality. You know, you get you, you you spend in the moments you should spend. There can be, of course, there there are vices on either side of this, and we could think of those pretty obviously. The skinflint on one side who's not spending for festivals and, and family time and things like that. And then there's a the person who's into conspicuous consumption who throws the, you know, the daughter the 16-year-old birthday that's really about showing off how much money they can throw around and impressing their neighbors. You know, that would be, that'd be, the, that'd be a violation of it. Finally, prudence. Prudence is practical reason, knowing how to achieve the good act. It's broken down into practical things that need to be done from domestic to military to political, kind of, kind of practical reason. It's very close to art, to making things, but it's broader in a sense than the sense of making things because it always has to do with achieving our good end, the common good, 
protection, domestic harmony. That's prudence. And remember, it's always oriented toward the good, and it's not just a utility, kind of a get-or-done attitude. It's not, that's not what prudence is. It's not just get-or-done. It's, 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 always, it's always oriented towards achieving the good without violating the good on the, on the way to doing it. And when I want to talk about, I've, I've gone through this in a natural, from the natural standpoint, but then we realize that we, we're not after Christ and with the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the world and in the sacramental life, that we're not just natural anymore. That we have a new kind of operating system that's been placed and adheres in, in our nature, and it's a supernature, it's the grace of God. It's God's sanctifying grace and the very indwelling, the life of God, the uncreated grace of himself, the Trinity, living in us. Uh, we have that. And so we describe the infused virtues. The infused virtues are these in the life of grace. It's the, it's the allied virtues, it's the, it's, the, it's the cardinal virtues in the life of grace. There's a debate among theologians over whether these are new virtues that come with the life of grace or kind of just like an elevation, a bumping up of the virtues that are already there. I'll kind of won't get into that debate. There's reasons for that debate, and it's kind of interesting. But the first thing that we realize is that God gives us a greater power. We have a divine strength to help us. And we also now have an elevated end for our nature. It's no longer just the natural human good, but it's supernatural. It's, it's personal relationship with God is now how, why we exercise our virtues. It's heaven. It's perseverance and the spread of grace in us and with others. For example, fortitude, the end of fortitude, the proper end of fortitude, now becomes perseverance to the end and shows its most beautiful act in the martyrs who manifest fortitude par excellence that is not just a human fortitude, but is God's very strength acting within them. And we see in them, in these infused virtues, the reality that the whole person, all that is good and human, is taken up by God in the Christian life. Nothing good is lost when we give ourselves over to God. He gives us an in, and it gives us an insight also into the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, permeating us. His light can move through all our faculties, our mind, our will, our emotions, even our desires. And with these infused virtues, it means that God's light penetrates every part of us, every faculty of us, and aligns us, aligns even our emotions, even our appetites can become aligned with God's providential will for salvation. That's a pretty amazing thing. That's why we say we actually participate through God's grace in salvation. All this is in complete harmony with us. All God's action is in complete harmony with us. There's no violence to the creature, the nature, and uh, no violence to our creature, to our nature, our freedom. Uh, in fact, we even say that we're more free because it helps us become more ourself. Remember I said that a virtue makes us more free? And this we become even, even freer because it elevates, our it elevates our desires and gives us the capacity to reach them. C concluding from this about the infused virtue is the primacy of grace in growing the virtues. We still exercise our efforts with the virtues, but now we're relying on God's grace to initiate and bring them to conclusion. The acts, especially the acts... That, that grow the virtues. We ask God, help me to do this. And then we ask him, help me to complete it. Help me to have the desire to do it. Sometimes you have to, have to say that prayer. Help me to want to do this. Sometimes we don't even want to do it. Sometimes we're like five wants away. And we say, help me to want, to want, to want. Uh, and we ask for that desire. 
And so now we pray for them, and God accompanies us and strengthens us in our actions. I wanted to say something about virtues in man and woman, but simply, I'll just simply make this point, that they're exercised in a paternal and a maternal way. That man and woman are built for maternity and paternity, regardless of what their vocation is. That's precisely why, why people say Father Hanley. I mean, because there's, there's supposed to be a spiritual paternity. And so the virtues that I have are exercised in a masculine way, which means a paternal way, and the women's virtues are exercised in a maternal, that mean, in, in, a, in a female way, which means a maternal way. I won't get into that, but there's some neat stuff being written on that. In fact, a, a guy who was in my parish wrote a doctorate degree on that, and a very, very interesting dissertation. He sent it to me. I haven't read it, the whole thing. It's 500 pages or so. Finally, I, he said I have five minutes, but I'm going to go a little bit over. I, I apologize right now, but because we've only gone through what they are. And, um, and we have to do, it'd be, it'd be an absurd, like I said, it would be an absurd talk of the virtues if I just kind of rattled through all the virtues and didn't tell you, didn't, didn't give some ideas about how we try to form them within ourselves. I had a whole year course, four-credit course, just on the cardinal virtues, uh, which is pretty amazing, four, four hours of lecture a week. So you can go on and on about each one of these. You have a different class on each one of these, which is really very beautiful. But teaching the virtues and forming the virtues in ourselves and in others, especially in our families, our friendships, our schools, clubs, and our groups, forming those virtues within us. We live in an age, and it's pretty obvious, that denies virtue in many obvious ways. We just turn on the TV. We see so many different violations, certainly of temperance, but also of justice and all sorts of things being violated many imprudent things being done by all sorts of people all over the place uh, in all the tabloids. But there's also a more subtle and more fundamental denial. There's a denial of human nature. There's a denial of objective truth about who we are and what we should be. And there's, there's, there's a refusal to allow anyone to assert truth about human life and the way human life is supposed to be lived with fundamental things like marriage and when it begins. And what we need to really do is create a counterculture. In fact, that's what I really see this institute doing. This is part of the counterculture. This is, this is part of the vanguard of a counterculture that, that, that against this. There's another group called the John Paul II Fellowship. I see some other people from the John Paul II Fellowship, which is a group uh, that, that does something slightly different than, than this, but also creating a counterculture, creating bonds uh, within this. And I want to focus on, uh, on building virtues here. The family, of course, is the ideal place. Parishes also, and other community groups. But the first thing, of course, we need to do is to build walls, especially in families. You need to build walls up to keep out injurious influences as much as possible, to make a safe place, kind of make a greenhouse, so that the, 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 the cold winds don't blow in and, and, and burn with frost, uh, the small saplings, especially our children make a safe place. But that's not all we do. We just don't build the walls. We need to make an appealing place within the walls where goodness, truth, and beauty, and unity live, where the transcendentals live. Uh, they need to see it. I like the image of, of kind of the Roman palazzo. If you've ever been to Rome, you see these kind of austere-looking buildings, and you kind of walk by them, and they're dark, and they're dingy, and they're dirty on the outside. They've got bars on the windows, and they look almost impenetrable. But every once in a while, you see these huge wooden doors open. And then inside, there's tr fruit trees, there's, there's fountains, there's, a, there's, there's light, and there's a courtyard. And every room opens out into the sun. That's the kind, that's the kind of image we need to have for the way we do it. We, in our counterculture, we need to defend ourselves kind of intellectually. We need to defend our houses and be careful of what comes into them. But if that's all we do, we're going to create pretty drab places. We need to, create, we need to bring beauty out. 
and show forth beauty. Specific ways. First, we need to engage and work on virtues. Of course, we can read about them, and that's a good idea. You should read about virtues. Pink, uh, um, uh, I would read uh, 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 Joseph Pieper. Is, is a great, uh, he wrote a book called The Cardinal Virtues. He actually wrote four essays. They put them into a book. Cardinal Virtues, Joseph Pieper. But also, we need to take them one at a time. We need to look at our lives and take each one and pray for them and exercise them each day. And we need to look for a chance to do them. We should be thinking about what virtue do I need and what would be a concrete exercise of that virtue? So what would be a specific thing I could do that would exercise that virtue? Temperance. You could say, I will not eat. Just starting off, I'm intemperate. I snack all day. I will eat breakfast, and then I will not eat a snack until lunch. That's it. That's your beginning one. Something concrete. And then you pray for the grace to do it, and then, and then you check yourself. Did I do it? And if you fall, you say, God, I'm sorry I fell. And you start over again the next day. The only person who, who, who gains virtues are the pers- is, is the, the scrapper, the person who's willing to fall down and get back up again and keep going. Not because they're so tough, because they know God's grace is always, always there for us. Um, we need to examine ourselves in, in so many ways and check ourselves in that. And then forming virtues in others. The best way to form virtues in others, form them in ourselves first. Modeling is the best way of teaching, especially for your children. If your children see virtue in you, they'll grow in them. But also, we need to get, use the saints as models and as guides. Remember that the saints are real people. We, we need, they're real people, and, and they really can help us. And we need to make, make use of the stories of the saints in our own lives and in other people's lives, highlighting the virtues and asking them to help imitate them. For example, temperance. St. Louis IX, king of France, the most glittering court in Europe, built so many beautiful things, built Saint-Chapelle and other places like that, and at the same time slept on the floor and, and didn't engage in any, in any of the revelry. Temperance. He knew it was greater. Maria Goretti. Don't we need her now? For those of you who don't know who Maria Goretti is, the 12-year-old girl who was threatened with her life if she gave in, and she gave in sexually to this, this man, she, she was killed by him. She died praying for his soul. He converted and was and stood and was present at the mass of her uh, canonization. You know, he, he, he ended his life living in a Franciscan rectory where, his mother, where her mother was the housekeeper. That's pretty amazing. That's Catholic, isn't it? It's really great. Thomas Aquinas in humility. Called the dumb ox. The story when Thomas was, all right, he's, he's flagging me down. Fortitude. I got a lot more to go. All right. Uh, uh, well, we'll do, I uh, uh, just want to hit you, well, fortitude, we'll do a couple examples on fortitude. You're the priest, John Vianney, fortitude, asking for, he's, and this is good not just for a priest, but for all of us, sticking it out in that podunk town. 16 hours in a confessional. Maybe only a priest can understand that, but you get an idea. 16 hours <laughs> in a confessional. We ask him, we look at him as a, as a model and ask him for help. Justice of the saints. Uh, John Paul II came to the United States, and in an outdoor mass, he saw the Eucharist was not being treated well, and it was awful, and canceled his appointments that night, and, and, and lay prostrate before the Blessed Sacrament for that evening, in reparation for the affront against our Lord. Now, they weren't even, they weren't even affronts on purpose. 
but just affronts against our Lord. The wind blew the Eucharist, and he and he knew what an affront this was. And so he himself laid, laid, was prostrate all evening. And then finally, just prudence. My favorite, good story of prudence. And we're, and we're done. All right. Good story of prudence. <laughs> Philip Neri, a great story of prudence of a saint, Philip Neri. There's a woman in Rome, a, a sister in Rome, claiming that she was, she was having visions of Christ. And the Pope had sent many, many a theologian from the universities by to check it out. And they all came back inconclusive, inconclusive. We don't know. Uh, and so he's wondering. And there's this big stir going around, and they're wondering, what do we do? And he finally goes to Philip, St. Philip Neri, who's parish priest in Rome, basically, um, but a great saint, a great confessor. He says, figure this out, Philip. And he says, okay. And he puts on his oldest cassock, and he goes walking through the stable areas of Rome, and he lets himself get rained on, and he gets basically a whole mess. He looks like a mess. And then he knocks on the convent door, she comes to the door and he says, I'm a priest, I'm a mess, I need help, can you help clean me up? And she says, get out of here, you bum. And then he goes to the Pope and says, she's not seeing Jesus. <laughs> prudence. Know, knowing, how, knowing how to see things. Asking him for prudence. Um, I have some other ideas with this, but that'll, that'll maybe wait for the Q&A. So now I am done. Thank you very much. Father Hanley is joining us for the first time here, and um, here are the rules, Father. We're going to go a maximum of five minutes. I might give you seven, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and we're going to have a maximum of five questions. That means short answers, short questions. Your question has to be one sentence long, and on the end, a question mark, and I'm adding a new rule tonight. The question has to have to do with the topic at hand. All right, question. Who came up with the four cardinal virtues? Where did it come from? A council or no, no, no. It's it, it, it was, it's from what? the ancient world. As far as I, I can see, they're, they're they're not attributed. I this is out of my. I guess I don't I don't know I don't know of an individual who came up with this is the four cardinal virtues when they were being written about. They're being written about by people who presumed everybody knew what they were already. Do you know what I mean? There's something just fundamental to to what it meant to be human. That's why I say discovered. How do you exercise prudence rather than just having it sort of given to you by God? Ah, that's good. So it, that, that's, a, that's a very good question. There's the, gift, there's the Holy Spirit's gift of counsel, which is really, that's a connatural action with God, which is even different than the virtues. That's kind of like a, a voila, God moving in us, and just all of a sudden we open ourselves through charity, and then suddenly someone does something that sometimes looks completely... We, we've seen, for example, Mother Teresa in, in, in Beirut when she... Went in. I don't know the famous story. She went in and she got those kids. You know, it, it was just she just knew what to do, and, and it wasn't. There was no natural. There, you couldn't even say she was exercising prudence there. She was simply just in the hands of God, and God was just whew, moving through her. And then there, and then there's exercise. Exercising prudence comes from uh, it's it's a practical it's practical reason. So there's sometimes we ask God for the light to see, and that's kind of the the, the infused virtue. But then there's it's partly trial and error. You learn from other people. A smart person listens, right? Here's, this person knows what they're doing. They do it well. I'm going to listen to them. That's how we, we, we learn from prudence. Okay. I have a question, though. Who times, who times Sabatino?
I can answer to it. It doesn't look like anybody. Thanks, Father. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, who else? Okay. Did, did that take off my time? Did we yes. The time? Yes, Mr. it did. Speaker, reserve the minutes. Last week, Sabatino went over an hour. But we're counting it as we're counting it as two lectures. What? An hour. He went over an hour. I was trying to teach. On Saint teach, Ignatius. I was trying to teach perseverance tonight. <laughs> um, have you and the the priest and and your brothers ever entertained the thought of taking exactly what you taught us tonight into the psychological and psychiatric community? And I say that because there is an exponential burgeoning of children, teenagers, families. And I just got back from a conference, and all I talked, talked about was pharmacology and dialectical behavioral therapy. I mean, yeah, there, there, actually, there actually is. And it's, it, there's some books written. Um, there's a book called Psychic Wholeness and Healing, and that's an older book now. And I, and I think, you know, it's, but it's a start. There's a guy, Rippinger, Father Rippinger, he wrote a book. It's kind of dry. Um, and dense, but it, but but it, that's precisely about trying to take the virtues and temperaments and things like that, uh, and 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 see where where it interacts. And one thing I would say that as a brand new priest, as I said, I had a, I had classes on this, and it also spirituality classes that had were about this stuff too, and that was the one thing that helped me as a young man, young guy. I'm still you know, but inexperienced priest. I have people coming to me with problems that I don't know about myself experientially. And yet I was able to draw on the wisdom of the ages, really, and, and be able to give people advice in the confessional about building virtues. And then they come back and go, wow, that actually works. And I'm like, thank God it works. <laughs> so, but, and I can talk to you afterwards. We, we, see me. Thank you. Should we have Father Hanley back? Yeah, yeah absolutely. All right. Thanks.